Welcome to the Team Health Podcast Program, Beyond Clinical Medicine, What They Don't Teach You in Residency. I'm Rob Strauss, Team Health's Chief Medical Training Officer, and this podcast is one of our series of diversity and inclusion. This is not a simple topic, and it has deep implications across our society as well as within our workplaces. But what is it? How do you define it? Is it creating a more diverse workplace? Is it ensuring equity? Is it recognizing and developing talent? Is it uncovering unconscious bias? There are innumerable definitions and as many goals, such as this one. Our goal is to move from a diversity reflex to an inclusion instinct, to cultivate a workplace in which everyone feels welcomed and empowered to bring their whole self to work. Today, I'm pleased to introduce Stan Thompson, Team Health's Chief Clinical Officer for the LifePoint Group. He's very talented. Stan has been a Team Health Medical Director of the Year and a Regional Medical Director prior to his current position, for which he has responsibility for developing and implementing multiple strategic initiatives. But why today? Dr. Thompson chairs Team Health's uh, diversity and inclusion strategic initiative and provides leadership for Team Health's efforts to create a more diverse, inclusive, equitable, and participatory workplace. Stan, thank you and welcome. No, thank you, Rob. I really appreciate you having me on and to be able to put on the other hat that I wear with Team Health and talk about diversity and inclusion, which you know I am extremely passionate about about this topic. I do know it, and uh, I think it your knowledge about it and your passion uh, has helped us all see more and uh, learn more. So thank you for that. Stan, let's start with the underlying issue of unconscious or implicit bias. Can you can you define it and perhaps give an example? Yeah, no problem, Rob. So so one, inclusion, right? So everybody gets what inclusion is, but bias is the enemy of inclusion. So and so what what a bias is in general, biases are those prejudices, thoughts, beliefs that we have that's in favor of or are against a person, a thing or a group. And when you break it down into unconscious or implicit biases, it's those biases that that live below our level of consciousness that, that we're not even aware of. And, and that developed because our, that's where our brains developed. Right. Our brains have to have to uh, uh, have to associate and have to recognize and and process thousands, millions of data points that's coming at it at one time. So your brains just develop these shortcuts to help it do its job. And so these shortcuts are developed over time with our environmental exposures, how we were raised, uh, what our friends said, things we came up with on our own, stuff we got from media. We, we don't know where we got these things from and they, and they just incorporate to give us shortcuts. So, so for example, I'll give you a couple examples. Here's one example. I'm six foot five African-American male. And, and, and in the good days, Rob, I was a little leaner than, than what I am right now. <laughs> So when, 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 when a person would hear I went to school on a scholarship and they're looking at me, they would automatically assume that it's a basketball scholarship. Right. Your brain says tall, African-American, lean, scholarship, basketball. 
That's what your brain does. You 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 don't control that. It just happens because of, of, of the input you put in. And and that's a harmless one. That's pretty benign, right? No big deal. Wish I did go on a basketball scholarship. Maybe I'd be in the NBA today, but you know, wasn't that coordinated. So um I went to school on a music and academic scholarship. So that's how I that's how I went through school. And that's benign, but some some can be a little more uh invasive. For example, I had a a Hispanic female doctor that, that worked at one of my facilities when I was at FMD. And she was very good. She was talking to a patient, explaining things. Her male scribe was standing behind her. And the patient looked beyond the doctor, Dr. Gomez, and said, doctor, what do you think? Speaking to the male scribe. Hmm. So those, and, and, and so when you put it in your head, I'm in the e- patient, in the ER, seeing a doctor, doctor has to be male. And so immediately, even though Dr. Gomez has on a full white coat, stethoscope around her neck, has been taking care of the patient the whole time and is giving these discharge instructions, she still thinks the scribe that's coming to the room with her is the doctor. So those are things that can, those unconscious biases can get us in trouble. So Stan, the academic scholarship is not a surprise to me. The music uh, is a little bit. So what, what, what did you play? I was a trumpeteer, Rob. I mean, I, I mean, I love that thing. I played the trumpet. The med school stole it from me, having to study so much. I was in the marching band, the concert band, the jazz band. What fun! What I'm, fun. I'm gonna pick it back up when I when I find a free moment. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck with that. So, Stan, you talked about implicit biases. Once in a while, I hear someone say, "Oh, I don't have biases. I'm not prejudiced. I'm not racist." Uh, and, you know, professor uh, and scholar Ibram Kendi in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, says that's just not true. Can you talk a little bit about that? So people associate unconscious bias with, with, with racism, and, and those two are two very separate. If, if you're racist, you don't have unconscious bias. You, you, you have conscious bias. <laughs> you, I mean, so that, that's the huge difference, right? So the, we're talking about unconscious bias, those things that we aren't aware of. If you say, yeah, I'm biased, then that's not unconscious bias. So we, and we all have unconscious bias, but you're right. People believe that they don't have unconscious bias, but they really mean they don't have conscious bias. And unfortunately, we all have unconscious biases, irregardless of race, creed, or religion, we all have them. Doctors really don't believe they have biases because most of us were trained in a very diverse training institution and we're trained to treat all people the same. So we really don't believe that we have biases, but unfortunately, there's been mega studies that have been done. There, were, there was a mega study, uh, meta-analysis that was done that looked at 42 studies related to biases among healthcare providers. Out of 42, 35 identified biases in different areas. And, and, and so we, we have them. And, and that's, that's, it's, just, it's just a part of life. So no question about that. Uh, but let me just ask the so what question. Talk to us a little bit about healthcare disparities. Yeah, so that that one's huge, right? So unconscious biases can get us in trouble, you know, generally. And when you really look at it, you know, it's, it, it, unconscious biases is what has what has kind of led to some of the systemic problems that we see, systemic racism that we see in America. But in healthcare, particularly, 
what unconscious biases in medicine can do. It can have negative effects on the care that we provide. So that meta-analysis that I talked about, Rob, the one that looked at the 42 studies that looked at biases and found that 35 were, were found to have unconscious biases, even though only 35 or 42 was found to have unconscious biases, out of the 35, all resulted in, in lower quality of care. So that that's the problem. So, um, and when you look at it, it, it's been proven out in, 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 in many studies. So when you look at um, um, pain management of African-Americans versus white Americans, both kids and adults have shown that, that, that black adults with the exact same um, fracture, exact same orthopedic fracture as white Americans will, will get often um, less pain medication if, if, if at all, if, get, if they get pain medication, the dosage is a lot is usually lower and the time frame from recognition of fracture to administration of, 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 of analgesia is, is longer. And, and that, that's not because the doctor is racist. There's this unconscious bias that has been perpetuated through some years that black skin is tougher. I know that sounds crazy. But that has been an unconscious bias has been perpetrated throughout the general population. And unfortunately, that leaks into us as, as, as physicians. Another one, let's, let's take a gender bias, women. Studies have shown that women who present with typical symptoms of myocardial infarction, just like their male counterparts, I'm not talking about the atypical symptoms that we know women can have. I'm talking about women who present with uh, crushing substernal chest pain, shortness of breath, diaphoresis, nausea, the classic read the book symptoms of myocardial infarction. Same presentation as their male counterparts. But when you compare the female and male counterparts together as far as treatment, the women were one, less likely to be diagnosed with an MI. And two, if they were diagnosed, they had longer time to definitive treatment, i.e. a cath uh, 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 procedure. I, I, I personally had a 28-year-old female that I was transferred to me at one of my institutions that the, the, the previous doctor had worked her up to the hilt for reasons for her chest pain and shortness of breath. But when I looked at her clear her EKG, it was clearly a STEMI. He wasn't a bad doctor. It's just that he 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 focused on that unconscious bias that a 28-year-old female can't be having an MI. And so he looked over um, um, the EKG, did everything but order a troponin, you know, and so it's it's those unconscious biases that can get us in big trouble. So let's talk about leadership and management. Most organizations talk about diversity, but haven't done much about it. And when considering others for advancement, <clears throat> you think implicit biases cause in, uh, leaders to figuratively uh, look in the mirror and say, does that person look like me or unconsciously look for perceived commonalities? Yes. Yes. Unfortunately, that happens. So um, another thing that our brain does, <laughs> along with those shortcuts for um, for processing information, our brains from caveman days have taught us to have an affinity to people who look, talk, and act like us. That protected us back in the caveman days. It kept us from running to another clan who may kill us. It kept us all together. We, we associated with our clan and we stayed together for protection and, and survival, basically. 
Unfortunately, those prehistoric traits have still followed us along the line. And now in modern society, they can get us in trouble. So when we identify somebody who looks and acts like us as a better candidate for a leadership position, that gets us in trouble because what that can do is create a homogeneous, non-diverse workplace. And that's not what we want, because when you have a homogeneous, non-diverse workplace, it, it, it is proven that more diverse workplaces outperform non-diverse workplaces in the same industry. If you do gender alone, they outperform about 15 percent. If you do gender plus race, they outperform their competition by 35 percent. So you, you want a gender and ethnically, racially, sexual orientation, disability. You want that diversity because it brings more innovation. It brings more team building. It, it, it makes your organization or your group or your team just that much better because of the different ideals and perspectives that people bring to the table. And, and for example, we and we know these biases are there, even though we say, no, they're not. I, I just, you know, this person is just a more talented. Well, Let's look at this across the um, and I think this started in, in, uh, in the Boston um, Philharmonic Orchestra. They they noticed that they had a a lack of females in their orchestra. So they started doing blinded auditions. They would put the audition knee behind a curtain. That's the only thing they did different, Rob. Just put the, the auditioner audition knee behind the curtain and just doing that their female uh, participation in the orchestra went up 40%. Wow. And you've seen that go across the uh, orchestra spectrum. Most orchestras now um, use that technique because people had that bias that males were better musicians. They even heard different music when they were looking at a male uh, performer. So you, you, you have to do those kind of things to try to blind yourself uh, to your bias to make sure you get the diverse workforce and diverse leadership. I want, I, want, I want your audience to do an exercise right now that I'm going to prove to them that they have some unconscious bias. Okay? Go for it. I want, I want everybody listening to go with me in your mind. I want you to think and I want you to picture three people in your mind. All three of these people work for a Fortune 500 company. Okay? All right. First, I want you to picture the CEO. Got it? All right. Second, I want you to picture the chief general counsel, the top dog lawyer. Got it? All right. Now I want you to picture the employee health nurse. Got it? All right. Was your CEO white and male? It was your chief general counsel, white and male. Was your employee health nurse, female? Why, why wasn't your CEO black? Why wasn't your, was your CEO gay or lesbian? Was your chief general counsel, why wasn't that a female? Why wasn't your employee health nurse a Hispanic male? It, we, we have these predilections in our minds that contribute to our unconscious bias. And, and, and we see that. And that's also what hinders us from getting people in leadership in right positions because we have a picture of what they look like in our minds and that, that hinders us.
that what a CEO looks like, what a chief general counsel looks like. So you're letting us know that our starting point, the first thing that comes up, uh, tends to be based on those unconscious biases that we have or have had uh, essentially all of our lives or we've learned. And we carry those into action. Yep. It's the problem. We're going to have it. That When I think of a CEO, Rob, I think of a white male. But what I have to do is consciously say to myself, that's not the limit for a CEO. And, and intentionally take that, that built-in over years biases out and realize and make room for anybody that has the talent to be a CEO. I read an article this morning by uh, a man who uh, <clears throat> said that he was taught that he had to uh, work twice as hard and do twice as much to essentially get half the respect of others, of majority white males. Um, which brings us this, up this concept of uh, stereotype threat. <clears throat> I, when, uh, and I, I want you to explain a little bit about that, which is, I, I understand to be when somebody represents alone um, a minority, they are more cautious, more perhaps anxious, less willing to speak up. Um, and not, as that uh, statement I made earlier, uh, able to bring their whole selves to work. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, Rob, and that, that's a very slippery slope and a very tricky situation. So, you know, there is some unconscious bias that certain minority profiles aren't as talented, that they, that they got to in, in the room because of uh, of affirmative action or this. And, and so there's these biases that, that people have. And the problem with that is it creates what's called psychological unsafety. And, and it goes into what's called, what, what ends up being a, what's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So for an example, if I'm a white male who has an unconscious bias that this Hispanic female um, got here on affirmative action and is not as talented, that's going to show she's going to feel psychologically unsafe. So she then doesn't participate as much. Or when she does try to participate, she gets cut off or her idea doesn't get heard. And somebody else says the same thing and they get recognized. Well, now she's psychologically unsafe. So she's not contributing. And that person who had the unconscious bias that she's not as talented now has a self-fulfilling prophecy because she's not contributing that she's not as talented. And so it's a it's a it's, it's a repetitive um, um, cycle that then she leaves the organization. That organization says, well, I tried to give a Hispanic female a chance, but they, they just wasn't as talented. So I'm just going to hire somebody like me who is talented. And, and, it, and it totally interrupts any diversity that you can have at all. And you have to know that that happens so you can recognize it. And you have to make her that the, what the what a better situation than that was, was that he recognizes bias, consciously, um, in, uh, intentionally intervened, asked her in the meeting, "What are your thoughts?" She now feels safe, psychologically safe. She now starts to contribute, and her idea is respected. And now she brings more of herself 
because she feels like she belongs. She has a self a sense of belonging that he facilitated that now that company or that team is going to benefit from her. Input. So Stan, that's a, it's a great example. Uh, and yet sometimes people are afraid because of what I think is termed white fragility to approach a person and find out what's going on. They're afraid they may say the wrong thing or uh, do something incorrectly. Uh, how do you deal with just communicating with that person uh, about and encouraging them to participate? You know, it, 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 it is a tenuous situation, and I understand the concept of white fragility, and I understand that also those in the minority, if we're ever going to get over this, one of the things, you're, you're right, Rob, if we're ever going to get past our, our biases and we're ever going to, as, as, as a society, um, be inclusive, we've got to communicate with one another. We've got to learn and respect the differences among us. We don't have to all be the same. The goal is not to everybody assimilate to the same level. That, that, that's detrimental. We want to uh, learn about and respect the differences amongst uh, one another. So you're right. The approach to having conversations with people to learn more is, is an important one. And, and, and honestly, it's almost how you approach any sensitive subject. And what, what, I, what I ask uh, majority members to do is to say, hey, if you're going to talk to a, a, a minority type um, person, irregardless, just be transparent. I'll say, hey, you know, if you're having a conversation with a, a, a member of the LGBT community, say, hey, I'm just be honest with you. I don't know a lot about the LGBT community. I was raised in, in, in rural Kentucky. And so I just have not had an exposure. But I, I am I am a person who supports equality, equity and equality cross board. Can I ask you something about so and so? Oh, they are they are leaned into you at that point. Oh, yeah. And then, and then what I ask minorities to do is don't be so defensive and rigid because the worst thing I can do is, is say, how dare you ask me that? Because then that, that will shut you down. And then you never want to approach any sensitive subject again. And we never move from where we are right now. We've got to start to talk to one another. We've got to start to communicate with one another. And, and now, you know, maybe the first time we meet, Rob, you don't ask me something sensitive. You just ask me how my kids are doing. And you ask me, you know, what kind of coffee did you get in this coffee bar? And we had that kind of conversation first. And then the next time you see me, Rob, you can say, hey, Stan, I hear you grew up in inner city Memphis. How did, how did, what, tell me about that experience of getting from inner city Memphis to being the chief clinical officer for, for, for LifePoint. That probably had to be some, some tough. That, that's how you communicate. And that's how we start to talk to one another. And that's how we start breaking down these barriers. Because one of the good tools in which I hope we get to later, are tools to break down unconscious bias being familiar and having uh, knowledge about another group is goes a long way in breaking down your unconscious biases about all groups because you realize what you what your brain does is realize hey i was wrong about that i may need to question other stuff let's go there right now stan uh so we all know that they're unconscious means unaware so how do we become aware where where would you advise a person to begin? So the, the biggest thing and the highest yield move is to say, you know what? 
My name is Stan Thompson, and I have unconscious bias. Just the recognition of having biases. And I'm African-American, but I have biases. You saw when I first did that CEO exercise, my CEO was white. I, 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 I've learned about some gender biases uh, that I have. I've learned about biases I have against my own race that, that in, 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 my, in my studies in becoming um, you know, more, uh, uh, more knowledgeable about diversity and inclusion. But the biggest thing you can do is to realize that you do have unconscious biases and try to consciously recognize them and be intentional about overcoming them, saying, who I thought this, where did I get that from? Is that a fact? Is that true? Or is that something I've heard and I've learned over the years? And then challenge that and, and question it. So um, to just having a lot of self-reflection and being intentional is a huge part of overcoming uh, uh Biases, and there are several techniques you can use to to make yourself aware. So there's there's counter stereotyping. So right, so you have to practice. It's just like golf. It, it, if you don't practice golf, you'll never get that ball off the tee. You'll never get it down the fairway. So if you want to overcome your unconscious bias, you have to practice. There's several techniques. There's counter stereotyping, in which you say, "All right, what are the stereotypes of this person that I'm looking at? What are common stereotypes that people say?" I'm going to act like these stereotypes are the exact opposite. And then it puts your mind in perspective. There's perspective taking. What you do is you put yourself in the same. This is really important for clinicians. Put yourself in that same situation that the patient is in. And that, and that helps you overcome biases. Also a good one. One of my favorites is individualization. And I, and I think all doctors should try this. Instead of saying, Room three is the African-American female with chest pain. Say to yourself, room three is the retired school teacher Hmm. with three children Hmm. and care for her from that individualized perspective. And it helps you overcome your biases. And and the other one is the important thing you and I just talked about. And I call that the out of boxation. So uh, uh, get out of your box. So do another exercise in your mind and think about you're having a big party and you're going to invite the 20 people you want to be at your party. See what they all look like and then go meet people that don't look like them. Because those are people you already associate with. You already know well because you're comfortable around them and invite them to your party. So name those 20 people and then name 20 people that are the exact opposite of those folks. And go start having conversations and communicate with people that is in the anti-party, the people that you would not normally invite. And that's just a few techniques. There are many few techniques to, to, to be self-aware and intentional about overcoming your unconscious bias. But there's other stuff. I recommend everybody go do the Harvard bias test. You know, that that helps you. It helped me hugely. I learned a whole lot about myself. That's where I learned out that I did have some gender bias that I never would have thought I had. You know, that's some things I learned. I had some African-American bias, which I never thought I would have. That's where I learned that I am the least biased against the LGBTQ community. That, that's where I learned that was on the Harvest bias test. And, you know, I went further. You can go further. There's lots of stuff, lots of education right now. Thank we you know you can go to University of Google and the University of YouTube right now, walk out with a DNI degree. There's so much good stuff out there. And then you can go even further. If you're really interested in a topic, you really like it, you know, like I did. I, uh, and I think you're, do, you're doing it as well, Rob, getting a uh, certificate of diversity and inclusion from Cornell. 
great program. Learned a ton. All the stuff I shared, most of that I learned either in that program or, 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 or through through reading. So it, it is ways if you want to overcome your unconscious bias, be a better clinician because that's what it will make you. Be a better leader because that's what it will make you. There are things out there and, and activities to do that you can get there. So, Stan, I, I thank you for that. And I, I want you to know that I particularly believe in the theory of not talking about the chest pain in room four, the psych patient in room seven, but trying to personalize them as much as possible. <clears throat> but I'm going to disappoint you because uh, probably pretty close to the top of my list of invitees to my party is going to be you and I'm just not going to change it. So, um, so Stan, you're leading a process involving multiple individuals to improve team health DNI initiatives. If picture yourself a year or five years from now and how will you judge success, understanding it's a journey and it doesn't stop in a year or five years, but what is it that you would like the organization to accomplish? So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed to be basically a facilitator of an awesome team of people um, uh, on the Diversity and Inclusion Committee, one of which yourself, Rob. I'm also blessed to have a leader, have leaders in, 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 in Leif and Mike Weaker at, at the top of our organization and everybody else at the top who really truly believe in the work we're doing to be a more diverse and inclusive organization. And so I, I have no doubt we're gonna get there, but when you ask me what it looks like in five years, what it looks like to me in five years is that not only we, but everybody else on the outside recognize that team health is a place that is very diverse from top to bottom and not only diverse as far as all the differences that we can all share race, gender, sexual orientation, religion, all that disability, all of that. We're diverse, but everybody you can find within the organization, irregardless of their minority status or their different status. If you ask them, they say, yes, I belong at team health. I am team health. I am respected. I am, I am able, I am psychologically safe. I have a sense of belonging that this is my organization just as much as it is anybody in the majority's organization. And that's the way they truly feel. And that's reflected in, in, in any time you ask them or any engagement survey that we do. That's the way we feel. To me, being that diverse and that inclusive is what would be success for, for our organization. It is a, a non-ending journey that's really not limited by accomplishing a goal or coming to an, the end of a time frame. Uh, would you like to share um, a final thought before we conclude this, uh, this program? I would, I would, Rob. I, I've, I've got several things that, you know, when I, when I want people to picture what it looks like to be inclusive. And, and, and I, I normally use the, the mantra of diversity is a party and you all, everybody's invited. And inclusion is everybody getting the dance. That's the mantra that we're that we're standing on. But I want you to think about it from this aspect too, as important. And I and I got this, and I, I kind of transformed a little bit. But I got it from my mentor Steve Schwartz. 
um, who's a, a, a former group president of Southeast group and now, now doing work with team health still. But um, it was a picture that he sent me and I found one that was a little different that I want to describe. So go with me again in your mind. I want you to picture three people looking at a baseball game with a fence in front of them. The fence is six feet tall. One of the guys is six foot five. One of the guys standing there, one of the girls or guys standing there is five foot 11. And the other one is, is four foot eight. So the guy six or five can see over the fence. The one uh, five eleven has a tiptoe and the, and, and, and the one that's four or eight can't see. So is that, is that, Equality? No, it's not. But so we then provide a step stool for the last two guys who can now clearly see over the fence. Those step stools are e- equality. All right, and now picture these three folks and the fence is gone. They can see the baseball game clearly. That's liberation. But now picture those three folks playing in the outfield with the uniform on. That's inclusion. It's great. Stan, thank you. Um, I continue to learn from you. And for those of you listening, thank you as well for participating in this Beyond Clinical Medicine podcast. If you have any questions about this topic or suggestions for others, please contact me, Rob Strauss, at beyondclinicalmedicine.org. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you, Rob. I appreciate you giving me this time.